0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. All right, well... So glad to have you here at Harvest Community Church. Um, if you're new, I don't right away see, I see maybe a couple new faces, but if you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It is my privilege to serve here as the lead pastor. I serve on a great team of other pastors and, and staff, and we have some wonderful leaders here with us. And uh, I, I've been going through a season of personal renewal, I think, and uh, I've just feel very much like no matter what lies ahead, I really feel good about the relationship I have with my Savior. And I feel that no matter what lies ahead, um, God will guide us and be with us and love his church. And he will lead us to do what is most honoring to him. And I'm so grateful for that because the older I get, I thought I would feel wiser, but I feel more like I need God and his leading every day in my life. And I just feel grateful that after 22 years, I still feel like he talks to me. I still feel like he walks with me. I hope that will be your testimony, no matter how long you walk with him. You would never outgrow him. You would never grow weary of him. He would still be the Savior who sparked in you that first love. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it is my deepest hope that over the weeks and months and years you walk with us at harvest you would meet the savior and you would turn your heart completely over to him and that he would become the central figure the king who sits on the throne of your life and that as he leads you you will discover life that is truly life that wasn't my sermon it was just something i just wanted to say from my heart um I've been working my way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're bringing it to a close. We've got just two more messages left. And today is not um, the feel-good message of the century. (laughs) Um, You may not even have a sense of why this is relevant to you, but the title of the message is False Prophets. And I want to start by just saying... um, I hope that what we have in leadership over this church are not false prophets, but I want to tell you that the Lord has challenged me all week to not assume anything and to sit before him in silence and humility and be examined. And I think that's been very good for me. And I think ultimately that's going to be very good for all of you. And I want that to be a regular practice in my life. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, and here's what it says. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. History is filled with great movements, some of them notoriously evil, some of them amazingly beneficial. These movements in history affect millions of people, But at the heart of almost every single great movement in history stands usually one person, a leader, someone who drove or moved those people forward to experience something. I've always been fascinated by leadership, and it's a topic that over the last 10 years especially has gripped my heart and mind. I pursued the study of leadership, especially Christian leadership at a doctoral level, I've got something, I counted it. I'm I'm almost ashamed that I've bought this many books, but I've got like 600 books on the topic of leadership. I can't believe 600 books have been written on the topic. And that doesn't mean because I have a lot of books and I've studied that I'm an excellent leader. But I want to tell you, I remain deeply, personally committed to growing as a leader because I am more convinced than ever how important leadership is to the movement of people. And that's no less true in the church than outside. I'm not suggesting that leaders create movements by themselves. The people do a lot. No leader creates anything alone. But it's very rare rare, that groups of people will move without leadership. Just try deciding where you're going to eat dinner with four friends in a car. And an hour later, you realize someone just goes, will someone just make a decision? Right? Right? I don't even care if I hate it. Someone just decide. It's just the nature of us that we often flounder without leadership, but we can flourish under leadership if it's good. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically described what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And it's not a place so much as it's a situation. What he's describing is what human lives and human societies would look like If Jesus were truly followed and worshipped as king, if he were not just a savior, but in fact, if he could order human hearts and human lives and then thereby order human societies, he was describing a beautiful picture of what the world would look like if he were in fact the king. What's wonderful about this picture he painted is at the end he makes it clear this is not an imaginary picture, but a picture that can be realized now. Not perfectly, not completely, but we don't have to wait until the end of history, until the destruction of the world, the return of Christ. We can begin to experience that kingdom even now in a very tangible way. And so as he concludes the sermon and paints this beautiful picture he makes it clear that he doesn't just want to inspire us or engender some kind of admiration, but he says, now I want a response from you. Because this kingdom, this beautiful picture of a world without hypocrisy, a world without violence, a world of peace, a world where God answers prayers and people pray with belief, a world where people treat each other the way they would want to be treated, This beautiful world is not possible just because people are inspired to want it. It is only possible when people respond to an invitation and choose what he asks us to do, to walk their whole lives single-mindedly down the narrow road that leads to life. I think that's one of the things we all understand instinctively is it's so easy to be inspired by a beautiful picture. Anyone who's ever watched a romantic comedy wants their own relationship or marriage to look and feel like that. But if we want that payoff, it requires hard choices. It requires commitment. It requires an active response from us. We don't get all the good things God holds out for us by wishing real bad, but we get it by heeding his call and responding actively to Jesus. And his invitation is simple. There are two roads that stand at the fork before you. One of them leads to life and one of them leads to death and destruction. You cannot walk both roads at the same time and you will find that today you are already on one of those two roads. The fork represents an opportunity to change roads if you realize you're on the wrong one. It's like being on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Anyone ever drive the Pennsylvania Turnpike or New Jersey Turnpike? You don't want to be on that road if that's not where you really want to be because the next exit's like 29 miles away. And if you're like, shoot, I missed the exit, well, you're going to see a lot of Pennsylvania and New Jersey before you get to change your mind. So that when the next exit comes up, you want to be decisive about getting off or getting on, because that's what is presented to us. And what he says is that road that leads to destruction, this, I kind of pointed here before, that road is really wide, it's well paved, tons of people are on it, you're not going to be lonely, and no one will hassle you. There's no laws, no limits, you decide how you want to travel that road, you travel it on your own terms, you make up the rules, and it's a wonderfully convenient and comfortable road, but in the end, It drives off a cliff. And then there is this little dirt path filled with rocks. It's not the easiest road to find or to travel. It might be a while before you see a fellow journeyer. But that road, if you embrace it, leads to the life that is truly life. The life that everyone on earth wants and dreams of, but that most never find. So that's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and then Jesus makes what appears to be a really weird, abrupt transition, and he changes the subject. Have you ever been talking to someone where you're kind of in a groove, you're tracking with them, and all of a sudden, they abruptly change the subject. You're like, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Well, I thought we were talking about the iPhone. Why are we suddenly talking about cloth diapers versus disposable? Di- I don't know what just happened. And that's what you might feel when you first read this, is like, why all of a sudden, does he issue a warning against false prophets? Look what he says. Watch out for false prophets. It's like, why now, in this point, after he invites people to come to the narrow road? And I think in part it's because he understood that after him, many other countless future leaders, men and women like me and like so many others you've known, will stand in front of God's people And with his authority, with his sanction, we would speak for him and repeat the same invitation, repeat the same message. In other words, Jesus understood that the invitation to the narrow road, the true gospel, would be carried for generations after him by other men and women who would stand before his people and tell the truth, or at least say they're telling the truth. And he understood that not all of them who said they were speaking for him would have it right or would even belong to him. You know, when our kids were younger, we had a family password. I freaked out one time because I watched some news show and. Some kid, you know, a stranger came and said, hey, I know your mom. Your your mom is Jeannie and your dad is Dave. And they said that uh, they're going to be late, but I'm supposed to take you to the mall and we're going to get candy and it's going to be awesome. And the kid goes, okay. And they go with the stranger and you never see him again. And I freaked out. So we're like, we need a family password. And we told our kids, by the way, I'm going to tell you for the first time in history what our family password was. (laughs) Elijah came up with it. If my kids are tricked by you at this age, they deserve it. So... (laughs) The the family password is Churchman Bartlett, okay? You're never going to hack that one on your own. Elijah came over there. We're like, what? He goes, just, it's Churchman Bartlett. And if somebody is going to pick you up on our behest, they will know that password. And you will challenge them and say, I know your face. I see you at church, but what's the family password? And if they can't give it to you, I don't even care if it's your Uncle Chris. You don't go with him. He's a bad man at that point. A threat to your well-being. And you call the police and you screen stranger danger. So that's, that's the function of a family password. Is it, it allows you to know the difference between someone who says they represent someone and someone who is actually sent by them. And the reason we need that is because not everybody who says I represent someone actually represents someone. Every day across the world... Men and women stand before other men and women, and they declare that they speak for and represent God. And I've heard some terrible stories of abuse, of error, of people who had to endure terrible seasons in their lives because a misguided or wicked leader told them they had to. Those wicked leaders, those misguided leaders have cost other people a great deal of suffering. And some of those people never recover completely from those wounds. And so this is not some idle warning. Jesus himself said later, and actually throughout the Gospels, and Paul and Peter also warn about this, that false prophets, false teachers, Christian leaders who are illegitimate would remain a very common problem for the people of God. In Matthew 24, 11, Jesus is giving um, a a prophetic warning about what the end times will look like, and he's describing what he called the birth pangs of the final days. And if you ever read that whole passage, Matthew 24, 1 through 14, what you'll realize is it's, it's like he's describing our world right now. It's eerie how close his description is to the world we find ourselves in right now. And in that description of the birth pangs of the last days. He says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. This is not some warning about weirdos and freaks and people you could see coming a mile away. What he's saying is, for whatever reason, the enemy of God chooses to masquerade as the partner of God again and again. And that makes sense, because if you want to kidnap children, you don't come dressed as the devil and go, oh, come here, kid. Get into my van. You come dressed as a nice person in a cardigan sweater and say, I know your mommy and daddy, and I have cotton candy for you. You don't come clearly marked as a person of danger, but you masquerade as a person of safety. And I think that's The wicked, evil wisdom of God's enemy is that is the way he has done some of the greatest damage to the beloved people of God. So Jesus issues this warning, be watchful, and he's telling this to the people. Now, this is a sermon that I'm painfully aware speaks directly to me and my brothers and sisters in ministry. We need to hear this, and we need to sit quietly and humbly before God and be examined, but the message is aimed at you because the the message is this. The call to action is don't just sit there. Be watchful. Now, I don't want you to be paranoid. I feel like I'm a decent person. Don't take my word for it. Be watchful. It is your job to guard whose influence and leadership you place yourself under. It is your job, and it's our job to be good leaders, but I want to ask you to be watchful about who shapes your faith and your experience of God in his house. False prophets are false on two counts. They're false in their message. What they say is not right. Now, there are clear deceivers like this guy. Anybody recognize this guy? Shout it it out if you know who this is. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say he's South Korean. His name is Sun Myung Moon. He's the inventor, and I mean that, inventor. He fabricated this whole new religion um, called the the Unification Church, more commonly known to us as the Moonies, because that's his last name, Sun Myung Moon. He comes peddling lies that are pretty easy to spot. He said he is the second coming of the Messiah, so he is Jesus, come again. Don't have to wait for the second coming. Here I am from South Korea. And he said that his wife is not the woman who's been married to him. How would you like to be this woman? That's not my wife. The Holy Spirit is my wife. And I am Jesus, return to you. The second. And he didn't say he was Jesus. He said he is the Messiah. Jesus was a good guy, but I am the Messiah. Now, he leveraged that lie into a large business empire and a new religion. This religion is really just a business empire. He has, he has owned car manufacturing plants. He is one of the largest purveyors of tuna in the world. If you've eaten sushi, you've eaten his sushi, because he owns half the boats that, that basically for. at least he did. He died five years ago. But when he died, he had amassed a personal fortune of around a billion dollars, by selling a lie. And many people, many people believed his lies and were tricked. But these were people who, I, I actually talked to a, a girl who came out of the Mooney movement in Pennsylvania. And she said the reason she got sucked in is they find the loneliest people and they, they just assault you with kindness. They take you to movies They're so good to you. And that's the way they win the hearts of many people. And then they start to tell you the crazy stuff after your heart is already won. I can see why it would work for those who have deep needs and a hole in their heart. But most Christians are not going to be susceptible to a man like this. If I invited him as the guest speaker to our church while I was traveling, and he said, hello, Harvest Community Church, Welcome, I am the second coming of the Messiah. Wouldn't you guys go out to the park? I hope you would. You would go to the vending machine, buy a can of Coke, and throw it at his face and say, get out of our church. Would you do that? Would you promise me you would do that? So it is not the ones coming clearly as deceivers. It's not wolves in wolves' clothing that God's people have to watch out for. When Satan wants to seduce the people of God, he does not come as a wolf in wolf's clothing, but he usually takes a more subtle approach. With the magic of Photoshop, we get this picture. That actually looks like a real animal, a shulf or a a weep. I don't know what you would call that, but that is a wolf masquerading as a sheep. And what Jesus said is that's how it would happen that everything about this deceiver would look legit from a distance. If you don't look carefully, if you don't look closely, you're going to walk right past this person and be like, what's up, Fred? And you're going to think, it's okay to turn my back on this guy. He's just one of us. When in fact, he's nothing like us. Now remember... That Jesus just got done saying there's a fork in the road which my sermon, my gospel, presents to every man, woman, and child. And that fork in the road is a choice to stay on the road that leads to death or to embark on a journey on the narrow road that leads to life. That's the invitation and is set before us every time the gospel is preached. And because he just got done giving that invitation, we have to understand that the false prophets which Jesus is in particular warning us about are not people who come dressed so much like this guy, saying that he's the, the second coming of the Messiah married to the Holy Spirit. That's easy to kick out of our church. But he comes more like this. It's not so much what the false prophet says that's a problem, but very often today in America it's what they don't say that's the problem. A lot of what false prophets today are saying might be legitimate and even helpful. But what's, a real, what's the real problem is what they're not telling you. Here's another way of putting it. Uh, and uh, Maybe you're, you're a little bit worried about what I'm going to say next because I just set up a kind of provocative statement. Professor Don Carson really says it well. He says, here's a problem with the false prophets that you find throughout churches today. There's nothing in their preaching which fosters poverty of spirit, nothing which searches the conscience and makes men cry to God for mercy, nothing which excoriates all forms of religious hypocrisy, nothing which prompts such righteousness of conduct and attitude that some persecution is inevitable. It is even possible in some instances that everything these false prophets say is true, but because they leave out the difficult bits, they do not tell the whole truth. And their total message is false. I think what Professor Carson is trying to say is, these are people peddling good news, but forgetting completely to tell people there's bad news. Let me put it another way. The good news that I have found water is much more welcome in the desert than it is sitting by the lake shore, isn't it? When you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst and someone says, dude, I found water, you say, where? But when you're sitting by the lake in the water up to your neck, oh, this is nice, and someone goes, dudes, I found fresh water. What you'll say to them is, that's nice. That's nice. Good for you. Pastor Kent Hughes, who was formerly at Wheaton Bible Church, says it maybe a little more directly. There is no narrow gate in this person's message. This man's preaching is all right in that he says nothing that is untrue. The problem stems from what he does not say. He says nothing that is offensive to the natural man. His message comforts and soothes and never warns of judgment. He wants everyone to speak well of him. There's nothing to make anyone uneasy, but rather only things that make people feel good, content, and falsely assured. And then I left out the last sentence, but what he says is, and they regard anyone who preaches differently as negative Nancys. I put in the Nancy part, but just (laughs) negative people. In other words, it's viewed increasingly today as negative when we focus on things like sin and repentance and the call to judgment. And I don't want to return to the days of hellfire and brimstone where we scare the pants off of people and say, you are hellbound and all of this. I don't want to return to a day where spiritual terrorism is resorted to. I love the good news of the gospel. I'm grateful that there is so much emphasis on grace and the positivity in the message that comes from pulpits. But that good news is good news because the bad news is unavoidably true. And even that good news is not found on a road greased with lubricant, sliding downhill with all your friends, never a care in the world. That life that is truly life is had along the journey on a difficult and narrow road. It's not meant to be 100% comfortable, 100% easy. It's not meant to be something that we just do in our sleep. And it's wonderful to be a Christian. It is wonderful to be a Christian. But we also have to remind people it is not easy to follow Jesus. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to run against the grain of everything in your nature and everything the world tells you. And please hear me correctly. I'm not saying they're false because what they say is a lie, but it's false because they're painting an inaccurate and incomplete picture of reality. By the constant insistence on positivity, we make it sound like Christianity is just one more Tony Robbins-like self-improvement program of hope and good wishes. Yes, it is filled with hope. Yes, it is filled with positivity, but we cannot take away the invitation to the narrow road, which Jesus himself said was the main invitation, the main response of humanity to the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It is not, do you want a better life? It is, will you choose to bend the knee and follow him as your king? Christianity is not a value-added proposition for middle-class America. It is not the secret key to the American dream. It is an invitation from a savior who interrupted history and said to us, I am introducing a kingdom and a life that is truly life. And those who embark on this journey with me will live. They will truly live before they die. But if you want that life, it is found through a narrow gate on a narrow road. And there will be trouble Take heart, I will be with you every step of the way. But the trouble which you think invalidates the love of God is in fact what the love of God is there for. We middle-class American Christians are confounded when trouble visits our lives. Where is God? He is right there with you. That's why he's given us the gospel, because he said from the start, this is a narrow road. It's a hard journey, but I will never leave you, and you will make it to the other end. You stay with me. It is not loving to tell people it will always be great. You can have your best life now. For the good news to be good news, we must be convinced that the bad news cannot simply be brushed away. And that after we accept the good news, the journey nonetheless requires faith and perseverance. When God was rebuking the prophets and priests of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, one of the harshest rebukes he gave was found in chapter 8, verse 11. And he said, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious peace peace they say when there is no peace i want you to know that we live in a messed up broken world and it isn't just the republican senators and the man of the white house is breaking it it's all of us it's our sin it's our brokenness it's our rebellion We conspire together as a human race to build a world without peace. And it is not the job of God's messengers to stroke his people and say peace, peace when there is no peace. The peace which God offers is a costly peace for him and for us. It is not a peace that is had because we choose to put on rose-colored glasses and say, let's stop being negative and let's be positive. Yes, I am all for positivity. I, I, I don't know how to preach this honestly without sounding like, "Oh, let's, let's just be grouchy. I'm not. I hope you guys understand by knowing me a little bit that if I err at all, it's on the side of positivity, not negativity. But it is not loving or faithful to stand at a pulpit And just tell people how they can experience the goodness of God only. It's also important to remind them that the goodness of God is very often found in the badness of life. That having followed Jesus, there would still be rough days ahead. And that's why it's so good to know him. Because the journey is hard, but God never leaves. That is the full good news. And that God has not come only to save, but he has come to rule. He is not here just to be Savior, but he is here to be Lord. And the full experience and the full goodness of the life that is truly life is found when Jesus is King, not only when he is Savior and Rescuer. That's the good news of the gospel. And I want to give a loving challenge to any of you today at Harvest who are trying with all your might to have your gospel cake and eat your middle-class American dream too. That if you want everything the world has to offer and everything God has to offer, and you're trying with all your might to reconcile those two perfect worlds so that you get heaven and earth in one package, no compromise, no sacrifice, nothing, I want to tell you, you will not succeed because God loves you too much to let you propagate that illusion forever. One of those two worlds you're trying to have will come crashing down because God is a jealous God and he will not share you with another king. The faith which we proclaim is a faith in which Jesus the Savior is enthroned also as Jesus the King. That is the true gospel. And any other message is a false gospel. And I want to challenge you to be watchful for what you're hearing from this pulpit and from any pulpit. I'm not asking you to be on a witch hunt or to become church auditors. I'm simply saying don't listen to everything that is spoken and swallow it without thinking. The gospel which Jesus preaches will always include a narrow road and a journey that is not always easy and filled with good company. But it is a road that will always lead to life. And no one stays on that road unless Jesus Christ is king over all. That is the true gospel. And I pray to God that that is the gospel that will forever be proclaimed at this church. That the bad news is worse than you thought, but the good news is better than you imagined. Those two things taken together Cause the good news to, in fact, truly be good news. Now, when false teachers give an incomplete or inaccurate picture of the kingdom and of the gospel, it's not just something they are doing against the people, they are doing it often along with the people. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, said these words, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. There are some terrible lies being sold as the gospel today all over the world. I've sat under that teaching on almost every continent. And it's sad to see how these predators latch onto the hopes of people who really do need hope, and instead what they're getting is garbage. They prey on the poor. I remember being in Tuba City, and a woman said, I, and we warned them, stop giving money to these televangelists these guys who keep saying, all your, li- all your problems are going to go if you send me a hundred bucks. And these people have not two pennies to rub together. And they will save up for months and send their money. And they're like, nothing ever changes, but I'm not ready to let go of my faith. I'm going to make a vow. And I just wanted to say to them, please stop sending the money. Start praying to Jesus. He loves you more than that liar on the airwaves. These are people who need real hope. They need real help, and predators have lied to them for their own gain, and it breaks my heart. But very often, the people of God are lied to because they want to be lied to. Listen, when someone says to you, hey, listen, um, do you have any lunch plans today? I want you to imagine the fellowship time. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, listen, do you think that I could buy you lunch? Right away, you're like, why do you want to buy me lunch? There's something I just want to talk to you about. How many of you are like, oh, awesome, exciting. What could this be about? Don't most of us go, Ugh, this is going to be bad. No one buys you food to tell you they love you. They buy you food to say, your breath stank, and I just, you know. They want to tell you something bad. So we're nervous when someone says, can I talk to you? Our hearts, our natures, are by they're naturally inclined away from hard truth. I'd rather someone tell me how great I am than where I need to grow. And if that's the way you are, I guarantee you, you already broadcasted that to everyone close to you. Don't you dare tell me truth I don't want to hear. You will get your head bitten off. And if that is you, you probably have a pretty comfortable existence. No one ever says anything hard to you, but it also may explain why nothing ever really changes for you. If you've trained everyone around you to not risk the danger of telling you hard truth, then the hard truths that will help you grow will never be spoken because everyone around you is afraid of you. That's just the way it goes. I needed to really sit down and be examined on this count. Am I like the people Paul is addressing who turn their ear away from the hard truth? Because there are some hard truths that I think I need to hear today. Truths that, if I'm honest with you, I want to justify and defend myself away from. I want to say, no, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the full picture. I don't think that's accurate. But in my heart of hearts, that pesky voice of the Holy Spirit goes, shut up and listen. You got problems, Dave. And I'm the only one who's going to break through to you. Listen to me. And as I listen, (laughs) there's a reason sandpaper burns. It's rubbing away the rough stuff. Any of you ever go to King's Spa and pay someone to scrub you? <laughs> I'll never have that experience. I pledged from this pulpit. But my wife has, and I have to say, when you rub her arm after she comes back, it's like a baby's bottom. All the rough stuff is scraped away. But I can't imagine that feels pleasant at the time. Let me move on. Before you think too much about all that. All right. They're also false because of their fruit. Jesus says, you have to listen carefully to the message they're bringing. If there is no narrow road, if there is no bad news with the good news, if they only tell you what your itching ears want to hear, and they never tell you what really God wants to say in the full spectrum of his truth, then their message is false. Whether they tell true things or not, because they hide the bad parts, it is not the full message, and therefore it is not a true message. But the second way to detect a false prophet or a false Christian leader is to examine the fruit of their actual life. By their fruit, you will recognize them. You know, recently, um, I was on the driveway just shooting a couple baskets. And then I, you know, because all the leaves fell off, I saw something I never expected to see. We have a tree, a flowering tree. I think it's a dogwood or something in in my front yard. And I noticed something was hanging on the branches, and I walked up to it, and it was what looked like a pair of perfectly ripened small Asian pears hanging from one of the branches. I stared at it for five minutes. I'm like, what on earth? I've never seen fruit on this tree before. And I'm staring and staring when I see Elijah pull in from basketball practice, gets out of the car, and he starts laughing at me. He goes, "I know what you're looking at." I'm like, "What?" He goes, "That fruit, right?" I'm like, "Yeah." How did that happen? He goes, yeah, "It's not real, Dad. It's fake fruit from Caleb's house. We hung it up there when we were goofing around, and we did that last year, like in the spring. But it wasn't until the leaves fell off that we... And the whole time I'm going, "What a miracle!" I got to send this into to the, the Vatican or something. I, you know, it's gonna be a documented miracle. And here's one of the reasons I share that story is that you can put fruit on a non-fruit tree, but it will never grow there. It's just not possible. It's not possible. Jesus says that when you examine the fruit of a person's life, that is the best way to measure the full truth of the message they carry. See, it's very easy to say, I trust God, but religiously, slavishly, make sure your savings account is always at the max. That my future is in God's hands, and my checking account, and my 401k. I believe that the most important thing is for my, parents, my kids to meet Jesus, and get into Harvard, and win every first place ribbon that is possible in the world. That will make them complete. If they win everything and they get Jesus, well, of course, Jesus first. Only Jesus. Unless it's SAT season or then no Jesus first (laughs) SAT, then a little Jesus, but not too much Jesus. Do you understand that it's so easy to talk about what we believe? Have you ever done this to your kids? Would you die for me? Yeah, I'd die for you then will you take out the garbage for me? (laughs) And when they say no, you're like, you'd never die for me because you won't even... But do you understand why that's actually more ingenious than you you realize? Because it is not what you claim that tells the truth about you. It is really, in the end, only what you do. A pear tree can only be a pear tree. And when harvest time comes, no matter how much it said I'm an orange tree, just like that here comes the lie detector. Pop, 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 pop. All my branches are hanging pear after pear after pear. I guess that's what I am. I guess somewhere in the depth of me is a DNA, a truth that I cannot change, unless I change that truth. I cannot make myself an orange tree by believing desperately that I am one. I can only become an orange tree if the DNA that defines me is replaced with another set of DNA. The truest thing about you is not what you say or what you amen to or what you cry over. The truest thing about you at the end of the day is where you put your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears and your mouth and your money and your home and your children. The truth about us, whether we're leaders or not, is what we do, not just what we say. See, we live in times when we have celebrity preachers. I just never thought I'd see a day when such a thing could be true, but like rock star preachers, preachers who non-believers recognize by face. It's crazy to me. It started a little bit with Billy Graham, but we have now, and the most common phrase I hear for these celebrated preachers, is they are gifted communicators. Have you heard that phrase? Gifted communicators. And the truth is they are wonderfully gifted communicators, and I'm grateful that when they stand in public and speak, they don't stutter like President George W. Bush did. They, they flow like Barack Obama did, right? That's not a political statement. That's an oratory statement. I'm grateful that we have such gifted communicators telling the truth. But more and more, these gifted communicators come from larger and larger contexts. And the reason I worry about that is because for many of these people, because where they serve is just so vast, only a handful of people in their home setting actually know anything about them at a personal level. And Jesus himself warns us, watch out for the prophets who speak to you because by their fruit you will know them. And i got to tell you, I can't understand how you know a person's fruit if the only fruit you see is what they basically tell you from a platform is my fruit. If you heard my preaching, you would think my marriage is an eternal honeymoon, right? Everything with me and Jeannie is great, but you hang out with us, And from time to time, you'd be like, awkward. (laughs) My skin was crawling as he said that that way to her. Do you understand that the fruit of a person's life cannot be measured by self-disclosure alone, and it cannot be understood or examined from a distance? When he talks about thorn bushes and thistles, he says you don't get grapes from a thorn bush and you don't get figs from a thistle this is something that everybody in those days would have known cuz they didn't shop at value produce they walked around and picked stuff off the source do you know what this is so th- th- these are maybe some of you grew up in the country those are not black grapes so they look an awfully a lot like black grapes those are the berries of a buckthorn these are black grapes they look kind of similar to the naked eye. Do you know what that is? On the left is the fruit of the horse nettle. One of the nastiest plants. If you ever run into a horse nettle, you will be in physical pain for a month. I know because I did. And the fruit from the horse nettle looks amazingly similar to a budding fig on the branches of a fig tree. The idea is there are fruits that look like the real deal, tasty, delicious from a distance. You're like, thank God our problems are over. We found grapes. We found figs. Ow! You try to get the fruit of a horse nettle, it probably won't kill you, but you will pay for the attempt forever. You try to eat one of these guys, you're going to die. You will die. Do you understand? Because some delicious-looking fruit is poisonous. To eat. How do you know the difference? Well, you're like, there's only one way to find out. (laughs) Please don't be that guy. Please. But you can find out by getting closer and inspecting not from a distance, but from proximity. So as we heed Jesus' call to test the fruit of those who lead us spiritually, there are a couple dimensions I want to bring to your attention. Two dimensions of fruit inspection. You like that? You're all fruit inspectors. I'm your grocery store. Pastor Jerry, Pastor Frank, Pastor Stan, we're we're the ones you're inspecting. Please inspect well. There's a couple dimensions. One is distance. And this is about how accessible, realistically, the person's true life, their actual conduct, their lives, how distant or proximal are they to you? What if you had a shop for your vegetables, and fruit from behind a glass window. But at every produce department, this is why you have to wash your fruits and veggies very carefully. Everyone who walks through is touching your melons, turning over. It's all being touched because that's the only way to really test fruit is up close and personal. I think this is one of the strongest arguments in favor of smaller congregations. There is beauty in the large church. I'm not a hater of the large church, but I think it poses a tremendous challenge for those who lead there. And for those who attend, because how do you really examine the fruit of someone you see from 300 feet away once a week? How do you really know that he's a patient person? Or take any of the fruit of the spirit. And the first one is love is patient. Well, you'll know a leader is patient because when you meet with them, they're not always going, Yeah, great. Um, so let's fast forward to the part of the story that's actually interesting. Um, i got to be somewhere in 30 minutes. Are they patient? Or do they say things like, dude, seriously, that was last week, same problem. Why don't you fix yourself, then come see me when you're better. See, you don't know about patience. If the only reason you think they're patient is because they keep telling you from the stage, I'm very patient. You know they're patient because when you are testing everyone's patience, that person stays with you. They love you through it because love is patient. Do you get the picture? So distance is important. And if you feel very far away from the leaders over you, bridge that gap. It's important to know your spiritual leaders on a personal level because that is the ultimate validation of the message they carry, that they don't just tell us what the truth is. They actually do the truth in their own lives. And I'm not asking you to examine that from a judgmental perspective, to look for trouble, but I'm simply saying it will bolster your faith and enrich the relationship we have as shepherd and sheep if you get to know your shepherds on a personal level. And the other dimension is time. Excuse me. Anyone can put up a front for a pretty long time. But you give a person long enough, eventually when they stop holding their breath, you're like, okay, yes, I have to breathe too. You know, kids say, I could hold my breath forever. Give them 45 seconds. Eventually, they have to admit, I have to breathe. You can only fake it for so long before the real you comes out. Have you ever had that scary moment where someone who you thought, "Ah, oh, they're so sweet, they're so sweet. <gasps> Ooh, they got a prickly side to them. I just saw the dark side of Pastor Dave. wasn't pretty. See, if you're faking it, you can only fake it so long. And over time, you will come to know the truth of people. But here's the other side of it, more positively stated, that everyone has bad days or bad months, maybe even bad years. But over time, if with grace you watch a person, you will develop a fair and balanced holistic picture of the full person. Your view of them will weather the storms of momentary disappointment, of conflict in this season, and you will realize that overall, this person is who they say they are. No one's perfect, but you can't really know a person in a month of examination. Being close is important, but giving time is just as important to know the full story of another human being. And that's as true of leaders as it is for everybody else. I'm running out of time, so let me land this plane. As I said at the beginning, I'm painfully aware that this this sermon preaches at me more than at you. And I'll admit to you, this was a very difficult sermon to prepare. Because every time I got going on the momentum of writing, I had to stop and go, Man, am I this guy? I want to say I'm not, but I don't want to sit comfortably in the assumption I'm not. Because I don't think I'm a wolf, but maybe I have wolfish tendencies. (laughs) I don't want to say I am, but the only way to be sure I don't become that guy is to sit quietly in front of Jesus and say, tell me what I look like to you. So I have, and I encourage anyone in this room who's a spiritual leader to regularly step away from the platform and sit quietly in front of your king and ask him, am I true or false? Is my message the full message of the gospel? And are my deeds reflective of my message? Am I walking the same way that I'm talking? But since I'm preaching to you, i got to give you something by which you can respond to the words of Jesus. So can I close with, with some quick, practical responses you can make. Here's your assignment. The first is to pray. That's what they always say at church. You should just get a self-thinking stamp that says pray, because that's every, <laughs> every... But here's why it's so important. I think many people who become false prophets don't start that way. I think one of the fastest ways to lose your courage and your faithfulness from the pulpit is to enjoy immeasurable success and have more to lose than to gain. Many people, once they get a following, start to play to the audience and say what they know people want to hear. I am not immune to that temptation. There are times when I will tell one joke in a sermon just to keep you awake because you laugh. I start thinking I'm at the improv. (laughs) And I remember one time... A good friend who invited me to preach said, Hey, Dave, I didn't invite you to do stand-up. I invite you to bring God's word. Cut it out. He's a brother. I look up to and it pierced me because I realized that's what I was doing. I was playing his room, and the people were cracking up, and the one comment I heard on the way out was, You are hilarious. I'm not so sure that's why Jesus sent me to that church, to be hilarious for them. But I got to tell you, when people are laughing, that's all I want to hear. And when they say, you're funny, I'm like, I know. (laughs) I sure am. Everyone wants to be liked. Everyone wants to be popular. You don't want to see anyone walk out of the room like, nope, I'm not hearing that. I don't have ears for that. But sometimes that's the only way to know that you're telling the full truth. If everyone loves everything you say every time, it's possible just possible you're not doing it right because this gospel is also a sword and an offense as much as it is the message of our hope and salvation so pray that your leaders will stay true and faithful to the full gospel and to remain men and women who live as we preach that is not a given. And if you think we are good leaders today, would you pray faithfully that we will remain so? And if you think we're not good leaders today, would you pray that God will either change us or remove us for the glory of his church? Here's a second practical application. I had to come up with an icon, so I picked a coffee cup, because that's the universal symbol of connecting today. Sorry if you're not a coffee drinker, learn, because that's where life gets done, man. All right. Starbucks, my endorsement fee is now earned. Engage personally. It's one thing to appreciate, admire good preachers from a distance. But I want to tell you that one of the best ways to engage in the church is to engage in a personal relationship with your leaders. And I'm not saying we're going to go watch Justice League today and we're going to hang out next weekend and the weekend after that. I'm not suggesting the, the point is to become buds for life with everybody in the church. I would have no home life. I would have no life if I try to do that. But here's what I'm saying. As much as you are able, set the bar there, that I don't want to just hear you give a public speech once a week and say I know you. Because I'm a, basically when you sit there and I stand here, you are permitting me, to have a hand in shaping your faith and your view of God. That's a a very holy and awe-inspiring responsibility. I feel the weight of that. I want to ask you to hold me accountable, and the way to do that is to, at some level, know that I'm a real human being to you. One good way to do that, just a little hint, invite me and my family to your home. I understand that for some of you, uh, it's harder to break into your house than into Fort Knox. It's a sanctuary, a safe place. I get that. I don't want to threaten that at all. But one of the great ways to get to know a person is on your own turf, especially if you're an introvert. Invite us over. And maybe you just do this once every five years, but at least you can say, that family sat at our table and we watched how they behave when they are guests in our home. And they're not total barbarians. And we had a nice conversation. And I got to know the human being behind the pulpit presence. If even that, that small measure, please consider it. I'm not saying this to get a free meal for me and my buddies. <laughs> you could just order pizza. We're okay. But I think it helps to open our homes to each other. And if we invite you to our home, it's not because we want to yell at you. I've had the vast majority of this church in my house. Have I Raise your hand if I've invited you for dinner because I wanted to yell at you. Anyone? Yet, the minute I invite someone to dinner, they're like, what do I do? <laughs> you were born with a digestive system. <laughs> I want to fill it. That's it. I want to know you. You're, you exist. That's what you did. And so when we invite you, I know it's not the easiest thing, especially if you grew up in a church where the pastor was a scary dude or you never thought that he was a real person. Accept invitation on faith. Let it happen. Make your best effort to connect with us. You will find that it will start to flesh out who those people are who proclaim God's word from the front to you. and It will give you a better vantage point to hold us accountable to true and full faithfulness as the shepherds of God's people. And the last thing I would say is value. It is no small thing to find spiritual leaders who you believe are truly a gift to you from God. Spiritual leaders who exhibit both the true and full message of the gospel, don't hold back the hard stuff from you, but will also live in your life as a person who embodies the message they carry. At our church, our pastoral team, I think just a wonderful group of men and women, and I I think that we are trying our best to walk the walk and to talk the talk. I hope... I pray that you agree with that assessment and that if you don't, you would pray for us. But if you found that here, please lean into that. Thank God for what you found. Don't assume that everywhere you go, that's just wherever there's a church, there are people like that. It is a gift when we find spiritual leaders who will love us, take care of us, embody Christ's heart to us. And if you found that, pause for a moment and just thank God for that. Let the gift of good leaders strengthen your relationship to a God who loves you, who is clearly looking out for you through the people he has set over you and put with you. Amen. As we get ready to pray, I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. We're going to sing one closing song, but I want to ask you to just pray. We have been scandal free for 22 years. Not too shabby. The leaders at the top of this church are men and women that I would say with a clear conscience have lived with integrity and belong heart and soul to Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful we can say that with an honest heart. Being able to say that today on December 3rd, 2017 has nothing to do with whether we'll be able to say that in 2037. Jesus Christ is the guardian of his church. The Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us true to him. And so I want to invite you now as we close to just pray that God would guard the leadership of this church and would protect us from any false message and any false person who would stand and rise to lead and have authority in this place. And should that unfortunate thing ever happen, that God would give our church courage and wisdom to deal with that decisively. Can we pray for that right now as a church? Let's pray together. Jesus, this church is your bride. And you care for this church the way any good man would love and cherish his own wife. And we pray that you yourself would guard the purity and radiance of this church. Protect us from a false gospel. Protect us from leaders who don't truly represent you, who peddle a message they are not willing to live in their own lives. And if any who lead here should ever slip into that corruption, rescue them boldly, decisively. And if they will not be corrected, then by God's grace, remove them for the sake of your church. We thank you that you've set over this church a very godly team of men and women who love you and love your people. Yet we also acknowledge we are very far from perfect. So we humbly place ourselves at your feet and we ask you every day, shape us more into your image for the sake of your glory and the spiritual well-being of your people. We pray these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.